So our time in the Word today, the sermon or whatever, is called Getting the Heart Back. And I'm going to start with a, a, like, I don't know, fancy pastors start with a quote sometimes just to sound uh, epic and like, like I read Pascal, but not that I even hardly know who Pascal is. I know he was a great guy, but I have a quote from Pascal, and it says, The heart has its reasons that reason does not know. The heart has its reasons that reason does not know. What does that mean? It means you'll do stuff sometimes and you'll want stuff sometimes and you won't even know why you want it so much, but you want it. Sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's good, but we, we don't even understand. It doesn't make sense to us why we want things sometimes. What, what does our heart really want? You know, we can try with our mind to reason what, uh, what we think we want, but I've met so many people, and I have been someone who's discovered that um, I want things that make no sense to me. Sometimes they're very destructive things in my own life, and I know in my brain that they're bad for me, but my st- heart still wants what the heart wants. I know that. Disney says, follow your heart. <laughs> Ben and I had a conversation about the movie Moana and every other Disney movie because I had this like, Ugh, that is terrible advice, Disney. Disney, this is not, this, you should not get your theology from Disney, okay? Disney does not understand life the way that God has set it up. It's terrible advice because the Bible says that our hearts are evil and corrupted, deceitful and wicked, and following your heart is like following a sleazy used car salesman of self-destruction. It just... I have bought this lemon so many times from this in my heart. I've chosen the golden idol. I have turned my back on God so many times. And today we're going to learn that God, what God does uh, to draw his children back into his presence when we have been the idiots who have turned our back on him. You guys know what we've been studying. Exodus 32 is a big chapter about how the children of Israel turned to the golden idol. When, when Moses was up on the mountain, they made a golden idol, and they're like, this is our God. We're going to totally reject the God that just rec- rescued us. And God was very, very offended at this, rightfully so. And, and so what God does to draw his people back, because God at first was like, I'm going to kill you all, right? And then Moses, because Moses is a type of Christ, Moses interceded for the people and he said, hey, yes, you're right to kill them, but I love them. I will, be a I will be a sacrifice for them. I will sacrifice myself on their behalf. You can damn me to hell and if you would just save them. And God was like, that's what I wanted to do the whole time. Thank you for being a good picture of my son. And now we can move on. So that's how we get into the text that we're in today. But I want to ask you this question before we read. If you've uh, have you ever fallen into sin and wondered what the way back into God's presence was? Have you ever, have you ever been so like, man, it's been days since I talked to the Lord, and then that turns into weeks, and then that turns into months, and then that turns into years, and before you know it, you've backslidden so far that, that you're, you're wondering, is there even a way back? Is there even steps that I can take? What, what is the deal? I mean, I feel like I have an urge. I want to get back into God's presence. I, want, I don't want to be where I'm at, but I don't know what to do. 
If, that, if you've ever had that feeling or if you're there even possibly today, listen up because today is going gonna, is gonna to be a, a very life-giving uh, message for you. Okay? So our text today says, Exodus uh, chapter 33, The Lord said to Moses, uh, Depart and go up from here, you and the people who you brought down from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Wow. So God instructs his people that they can go ahead and take the promised land. But does anyone think that this timing is just a little bit strange? I mean, the people have just failed horribly. They just committed idolatry. They just got basically yelled at by God. And now God's like, you know what? Go take the promised land. Does anyone think that's weird? Like, why, why right now? They just rejected God and gave their hearts to a stupid gold calf. God just said, we're not okay. You are stubborn, and I'm pretty angry with how you are rejecting me. Yeah, I think it's weird. I think God is, is, is doing something different here. I don't think he really wants them to go take the promised land. I think he's offering them something. And I think this is step one in repentance. God has already listened to Moses' intercession for them. That's like the picture of Jesus, where Jesus says, I, I love them, I'm going to sacrifice. God said, okay, I, I love them too. But God wants to get the people to come back to him, and that is, so God, everything on God's side is done. God is fine with the people. He can forgive their sin. He's okay with them. But the people are still kind of messed up, and they feel distant from God, and they, they feel this guilt, and, and so God is going to take them on a path that we call repentance, which is a big word that sounds super scary, but it's really about us getting realigned back with God getting back into his presence where we feel and know and believe that we're in the right place that we're supposed to be. So I think step one in the presence, in getting back to repentance, and is this question right here that God is basically posing. Do you want God's blessings or do you want God himself? Do you want God's blessings or do you want God himself? So I think this is clearly a test for the hearts of the people. God has already punished them as a nation, but now God is after their hearts. He, wanted, he wants a restored relationship. He knows that in order to be able to reconnect with him, they need to realize that their sin has disconnected them from him. It separated them. And so God offers them blessings. He says, here, take the promised land. But it, it's going to be through an angel. You know, giving blessings for God is so easy. He's like, I can dispatch my like guy who cleans my floors in heaven. He can take the promised land for you. It's nothing for God to give blessings. That's easy for God. We, we're like, God, if you would just bless me. And he's like, that's not that important. I could bless you through just a little measly angel. I'm wondering if you really even care about me. About me. 
This wasn't the angel like we've seen in the past. In different times, God says he sent his angel, and it was actually him. It was actually his presence. But this one is different. It's just a little, I call him measly angel. I'm, I'm just, he could kick my butt, but um, yeah, he's an angel. Would this arrangement work for the people? Would God, would they just take God's blessings and leave him behind? It's like, all right, see ya. We're off to get the promised land, right? Which would they choose? The beginning of heart change is when we decide that we want God himself and and we choose him. That's repentance. That's the beginning of repentance. Step one, we'll call it, of repentance is when our heart decides that a relationship with God is what we really care about. When we care about himself, you know, he's offering to give himself to us. All of himself, unreserved, committed and faithful. He's like, I am there with you. So what do you want? The blessings or do you want me? I'm going to give you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a famous preacher in England 150 years ago. To be given every other blessing is of no value if God is not with you. What is the value of Canaan? What is the value of milk and honey? What is the value of having possessions if God was not with them? They saw the realization of the presence of God and having fellowship and company and it was infinitely more important than everything else. So that's what's going on in their hearts. When God says, I, go, take the promised land. I'll be waiting right here. It, it actually works in their heart because they realize that deep down in their hearts, what they really wanted was God himself. Look what it says in our text. It says, and when the people heard this bad news, They mourned. And that is a great verse. The results of the test are in, and they are good because this is bad news. It's just like, you know, cancer test. (laughs) John was, we were watching something, or I don't know, we were talking about a cancer test, and, and they came back and said, the test was negative, yay! And John's like, wait a second! If it's negative, isn't he dying with cancer? And we had to explain to him, no, like a negative test means it's good. You don't have the cancer, right? Well, here, it's like this results come in and they mourn, and that means that their hearts are soft. That means God has been working in their heart, and they're sad because of this threatened loss of God's presence. It's important for them to remember, to to learn. Step one in this repentance work that God is doing has been completed. They are, have a soft heart. They realize that they want God and not the blessing. So I'm going to ask you three questions. Would you serve God if he took everything away from you? Easy question. Well, maybe not that easy. Most of us would say, yes, I would serve God if he took everything away from me because we think that like makes us cooler Christians, right? Yeah, okay, that's, that's an easy question. How about this? Would you remember God if he gave you everything you could ever want? 
that one, you're like, that's not quite as important, I don't think. We just don't feel like it's that, as important. Of course, if God gave me everything, yeah, I'd remember him. That's not as big a deal as if he took everything away from me. How about this? If God offered you, offered to give you everything, but with a guarantee that he would walk away from you and you could enjoy it all, would you take that deal? Yeah, I, you know, that's, that's the real test. That's the real test. I'll give you blessings, but I'm not going to go with you. What are we going to do in that situation? It's truly a test of our affections, a test of our heart. What do we want? What do we want most? I can't answer that question for you. I can barely answer it for me. Let's, let's uh, look at the next verse here. And no one put on his ornaments. For God had said to Moses, See, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in a moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So, of course, you picture them all walking around like Christmas trees with ornaments all around. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not the kind of ornaments. Well, kind of. I mean, it's their decorations and their you know, jewelry and stuff like that. So again, step one in repentance was, do you want God's blessing or God himself? So I, I believe God is what I really want, faith. That's, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step forward to answer that and say, faith is the first step in repentance. Step number two we see right here is stop trying to look good. Stop trying to look good. And that would be another way we could say humility. Stop trying to look good. The people, it says, took off their ornaments, and these were the various things that they used to make their flesh look good, their bodies, their faces, to cover up ordinary things or to cover up weak things, to appear to be something just a little bit better than they actually were. And this is humility. This step two in repentance of getting back into a right relationship with God after we have totally screwed up and, fa- screwed up and failed and, and just abandoned him and turned our backs on him. Step two is to stop trying to cover up what we really are. The people have begun to actually admit the truth about who they are. This has been what they have been so stubborn about. How many times has God said, you're a stiff-necked, stubborn people in these last two chapters? Over and over and over, God keeps saying, and this is what they've been stubborn about, that we are fine without God. That's a stubborn at heart in God's world. You're fine without me? You really think so? Here, let me do this to show you how much you need me. Uh, I'm still okay without God. Or I just need God this little bit. These are what stubbornness is. And if we take a, a real hard look at the church around us and maybe the church in our city, in our country, and in this world, we see a very similar philosophy infecting nearly every corner of our church. People are putting on ornaments to cover their weakness and their flesh. 
This will make you special. This will make you unique. This will help you out today. That will help you out tomorrow. Buy this book. Say this prayer. Attend this event. Ritual. Add ritual. Do these things. Volunteer more. Serve more. Give your money. All of these things are ornaments. All of them stop a real relationship with God where your trust is in him. When we're told that the thing we do is the avenue to getting back to a relationship with God, you are being sold a lie and it's just an ornament. And God says here, take off the ornaments, strip off everything that you think that makes you higher, that makes you better, that makes you prettier, And let's get down to what you really are. And what are we really? Broken. Dirty, sinful, broken people. God says, you have to get there. Because my grace is given to the humble. Right? He will not give his grace to the... So so if we're prideful... He, he, he literally stands there with his hands pushed out against us saying, I can't give you help. I can't work this out for you. I have to let you struggle and because you think you can do it. And he brings more hard times into our life and more difficulty and more struggle and more pain until we get to the point where we're like, Get rid of all these ornaments. Get rid of all this. I am so broken. God, if you can't heal me right here, if you can't touch me right now, I am just done. I'm dead. I'm, I'm, I got nothing else. And God says, finally, we are here. We, have, we can now meet together. We are now in a place where I can give you all that stuff that you wanted. But the people here, we see they strip themselves of anything that looked good or covered them up or covered who they are. And this, we see that humility is really vulnerability. And that's why it sucks and none of us want to really be humble because you have to be so vulnerable. I find that humility is the most terrifying thing to to me mostly and to all my friends and family it's just scary to be open with god when he knows how messed up we are like it's scary but it's step two in repentance because getting right with god we have to stop trying to look good and we have to be vulnerable with him we have to let him in we have to show him who we are he already knows but he demands that we stop covering it up. Stop. Tell me how much you need. Tell me how much it hurts. Tell me how angry you are. Tell me. Talk to me about it. Job went through like 30 chapters of complaining about God, right? And then God said, Job did it exactly right. What? But he said all kinds of things that were not right. So what, are we, what is God saying when he says he did it right? He's saying the whole point of this Job thing, the reason why I gave you this book, is to show you that you need to be vulnerable with me and bring all your thoughts to me, bring all your pain to me. Just bring it to me. That's the right way to deal with it. And am I going to tell you why I did it? No. I don't have to. I might. Might not. 
I don't really care because that's not the point. It's you coming to me and us having a relationship that's the point. That's the point. Humility is always connected with receiving a blessing from God. Uh, What does the Bible say? Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Exactly. So let's look at our, our text continuing. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Where was it? Are you sure? Okay, I just want to make sure. We're sure. It was outside the camp. I think that maybe is important. So remember that I made such a big deal of those words. Okay. So whenever it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle. Now, remember, this was not the tabernacle that we studied already. They haven't built that one yet. They just got instructions in chapters 20 through 30, like that area, what we studied. It was all all amazing. Well, they haven't built it yet. That's coming in the future. So this is like a temporary tabernacle. So uh, it came to pass whenever Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So Moses shows us here, he had a real and and constant desire to meet with God and to know God, to be God's friend, okay, to have a relationship with God. And he figures that if God won't be in the camp with the people, fine, I'll just go and set up a tent to a place, in a place where he will meet with me. And it would have been really easy for Moses to just give up right here, uh, but the relationship with God means something to him. It means something. So does it mean that something to us? Does it mean, does having a relationship with God really mean something to us? Will we get up and meet with him in our own living room or in our own closet? We don't even have to walk outside of Denver. Like you have to walk to Elizabeth to meet with God. Like some people would if that was the rule. But God has set up a new system for us where we can meet with him in our bed, in our living room, in our closet, in our church. But do we want it? Do we want him? Are we getting back to the heart of the issue? Do we want him? If they wanted to come, you know, it says here, Moses uh, was leading the people. He didn't force anyone to join him to go out to this tabernacle, right? He walked right by them. And if they wanted, you know, they could stand and watch, you know, they could. And if they wanted, they could join him. They could. Who, who, do you know who did join him? Joshua. Good job. 22 Jesus points for you. Joshua did make a decision to join him. That's pretty cool. We'll study that later. Um, but look at where he met with God. Where he met with God. Outside the camp. So now you've got to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13. Hebrews 13, 13. It's really cool that he meets with him outside the camp. So let's look at, at Hebrews 13, 13. says, Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his 
reproach. What happened to Jesus outside the camp? Right. Okay. We're in the future. We know the future. We know what happened. Jesus was crucified outside the camp. But our story in Exodus takes place before this. So when it's very, very clear and it says twice this happened outside the camp, it is foreshadowing what would happen outside the camp, which was he was crucified. Look at verse 12, just in case you think I'm making this up. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate, which is outside the city limits of Jerusalem, right there, outside the camp. Jesus was crucified outside the camp. And that's where we are to go to meet with him each day. So what does outside the camp mean for you and for me today? At the cross. We have to go meet with him at the cross daily. Now where is that? It could be your bathroom. It could be your closet. It could be your living room, it could be your church, it could be your car, it could be whatever. I don't care where it is because it's invisible and you have to literally transport back in time. So what, what am I saying? Time travel is real? Okay, Marty McFly, let's go. We need to wake up in the morning, get in our DeLorean, and go back to the cross every, every day. And we need to remember what, we need to look at it, we need to breathe the, the air and smell the smells and, and feel the agony and we need to remember his cross every single day. We got to see the blood of the innocent lamb being freely offered for you. Oh, well, I believe that. When I was 12, I prayed a prayer. I believed it. Yeah, you're a big jerk today. Great. I'm glad you prayed a prayer. I don't care because my heart gets hard in 10 minutes if I'm not meditating or if I'm not abiding in Christ. I'm wicked. I need Jesus daily, minutely, moment by moment. We need his blood cleansing us and softening our hearts. He says, abide in me. Abide in my words. Abide in my cross. Abide with my blood. Abide remain, stick there, go back there, consider his perfect love and affection for you. When you wake up in the morning and the first thing you look at is Jesus hanging on the cross, his body tortured and and filleted out for you, and he's looking at you saying, hey, I love you, good morning, what are we going to do today? That's going to affect your life. I promise you, it will affect who you are and what you think about and what you hope in what you look to to meet your needs and satisfy you. It's so powerful. And it's just Jesus. No pastor can take you there. No devotional book will ever take you there. Nothing can take you there except Jesus at his cross. He can do that. We can drink in his sufficiency at the cross every morning. He will not disappoint you. So he says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go to him, go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. 
the Hebrews author is writing this to Christians who lived decades after Christ, and he's writing it to us saying, you need to go to the cross every day. You need to go there. Why? Because you're sanctified there. You are changed there. That's what the word sanctified means, changed. Ah, I just don't know. I'm in such a bad place. I'm so lazy. I don't do this for God. I don't do that for God. I'm, I'm broken. I'm hurt. I need to be changed. What do I do to be changed? God's like, I've told you. I've given it to you. The cross is the only thing that changes you. He gave his blood to change you. So go there and get it. Go there by faith, saying, Jesus, I come into your presence this morning. I need your blood, and I believe it. I believe somehow the DeLorean of the Holy Spirit with the flux capacitor of grace somehow works, and and it changes me. So to summarize, we've seen that there are two necessary responses to sin and to falling short, of, and, to, and this helps us what understanding what repentance is. Number one, that it's got to be about a real relationship with God and not his blessings. If you want to go to church to, get, to, to be blessed by God, please go away. We don't want you here. Because God, God, God doesn't want any part of that, right? He says, Go. I'll even give you some of the blessings. If you're here just for blessings, go away. Wow, I went to church and they told me to go away. I have to have faith that he is the one who will meet my needs and satisfy my heart. Blessings can never take his place. And this is another way, a definition of faith for us. Do you believe Jesus meets your needs? Or are you here to get some blessing from him? Would you come here if he said, I'm never going to give you a single blessing, but you can know me? Would, would we come? That's it. That would, well, of course, of course. Of course, I'm tricking you. <laughs> All right, number two. The second thing that we're summarizing what we've learned today is I must stop trying to cover up my brokenness, my need, I, myself. I, I've sinned and I'm really broken and I'm guilty. And I didn't, it didn't work for Adam and Eve to cover up their sin, did it? No. And it won't work for me either. And this is humility. Saying, God, I, I need you. I'm broken. I need you, not your blessings, to your material blessings to, to meet my needs. What my biggest need is, is you. These two things are so important to have a real relationship with God that can be restored when we fail. So, questions for you. Do you believe God alone can satisfy your heart? Amen. Do you admit that you are broken and in need of his mercy and grace? These are the two, rea- these two rea- realities of humility and faith if they are present in your heart, then you have a place to meet with your God outside the camp, and it's, it's the cross. You get access. You get, those are the tickets to his gun show. I'm glad you like that, Ben. Or is that like a moan, like, oh. Okay, well. I'll take it. <laughs> 
<laughs> there is a ticket, a price required for us to, go, to, to come back into God's presence. There is something required. And that is humility and faith. Humility. God, I'm broken. I need you. And faith, I think, I believe, you are the only one that can meet my needs. And so I'm coming here to meet with you. Jesus, his response to humility and faith is always very simple. He pours out his grace. He, he responds to humility and faith with always giving us his promises, fulfilling his promises, answering our prayers. Jesus takes all our sin away. He suffers for it. He offers us in exchange freedom, and then he meets with us to develop a relationship with us. What a wonderful Savior we have. Jesus restores us to a real fellowship with God. When we have clearly rejected him, turned our backs on him, And I will be the first one to raise my hand and say, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And and his standard, I just fall short of daily, consistently. But Jesus is the hero of my story. He pulled me up out of the mud and washed me with his pure water. He transforms my heart with his blood daily at the cross. He invites me into deep communion with him where I can know him and and he knows me. And that's the point of the gospel. Relationship. Where God delights in us and we delight in him. He is our God and we are his people. There is no greater joy than any of that. And I never think that God wants you to accomplish anything. I never want you guys to think that God wants you to accomplish anything to delight him more. In other words, I don't want you to think that you can be more attractive to him by putting on ornaments. You, the broken you, the hurt you, the painful you, the one, the you that you think no one can love, God is deeply committed to. He is there for you. And he simply asks that we humbly accept and trust in his son. And this is what he's required of us. This is the whole gospel. That we trust in his son, that we give it all for his, uh, that we give it all, that we accept that he has given all for us.